Welcome to the Mindset Reset Podcast. My name is John Marty, and on the show, we dive into the mindsets of the world's foremost thought leaders and turn them into actionable insights so that you can discover greater happiness, success, and fulfillment. Today's topic, how a daily practice of gratitude can make you happier. Our guest is AJ Jacobs. AJ is an author, journalist, lecturer, and human guinea pig. He's written four New York Times bestsellers that combine memoir, science, humor, and a dash of self-help. He's appeared on Oprah, The Today Show, Good Morning America, CNN, The Dr. Oz Show, Conan, and The Colbert Report. And he's got numerous TED Talks as well. You have to check those out. He's a great great guy. I really enjoyed the conversation with him. Today, we're diving into his newest book, Thanks a Thousand, where AJ decided to thank every single person involved in producing his morning cup of coffee. The resulting journey took him across the globe, transformed his life, and reveals the secrets about how gratitude can make us all happier, more generous, and more connected. Enjoy. AJ, thank you so much. And speaking of gratitude, you wrote a book on gratitude and kind of this mindset that you had. And I'd love for you to dig into the mindset that you had going into your journey and maybe give an introduction of the journey that you went through. Sure, I'd be happy to. I always say that we are born with two sides. We've got the Larry David side and the Mr. Rogers side. So the cynical negative side and the positive, optimistic, hopeful side. And I think I was born with a pretty strong Larry David side. I was very good at finding the negative. If I heard a hundred compliments and a single insult, what did I remember is the insult. And I don't think I'm alone. I think we are born, we are wired to have this negative bias, which was very helpful when we were on the savannah as cave people. You know, we had to notice that lion. But now the negative bias is just not good for our mental health. So I knew that I had to fight the negative bias. And I knew that one of the most powerful weapons against it is gratitude. Gratitude doesn't come naturally to me. I don't think it comes naturally to anyone. So it's like, how can I just amp up that gratitude? It's like a practice. It's like yoga or whatever. It's something I have to work at. And I know I have to work at it, but it makes such a huge difference that it's worth it. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I was speaking to Garen Jones recently, and Garen is a motivational speaker now. He was living in his car, went to prison, really had a rough childhood. His dad was murdered when he was 12 years old. I spoke to him the other day, and he has a book entitled Change Your Mindset, Change Your Life. But when he was describing it, he actually was describing the behavioral changes he had. And they started very, very small. So they were, well, I'm going to just change my soap. And then I'm going to change the way I walk somewhere. And then I'm going to change. And so there were these micro changes, which then wound up actually helping and affecting his mindset in a very big way. Six years later, he's now this very prominent motivational speaker and what have you. He's totally transformed his life. So it is fascinating how those behavioral changes add up. They compound. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk about on your show was how important action and behavior is in changing your mindset. 
because, you know, I had always assumed growing up, it's like you change your mind and then your behavior changes. But as you know, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy that talks a lot about change your behavior. There's a great quote that I wish I had come up with. I think it was the founder of Habitat for Humanity. He said, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. So if you want to be grateful, then act as if you're grateful. And that is what I did. So I would wake up in my default Larry David grumpy mood, but I would force myself to call people and thank them. And eventually my mind would catch up. I tricked my mind in a good way. And I'd be like, you know what? I am grateful. Do you wind up doing any practices in the morning? I have a few. I guess I'll choose this idea of savoring because savoring was a big part of my gratitude experiment. One of the people I thanked was this guy who goes around the world and tastes the coffees. Is that Ed? That is Ed, exactly. Thank you for remembering and noticing. So he tastes, you know, hundreds of coffees a month professionally. And he taught me how to do it. And you have to slurp it because you want to spray it all over your mouth because there are taste buds in your cheeks, apparently. Anyway, he would taste it. And he just has such a refined palate. He would like say the most absurd things like, oh, this tastes like, you know, pineapple mixed with maple syrup and, you know, dirt from Nicaragua. And I'd be like, what? Uh, you know, I would taste it and I'd be like, that, that tastes like coffee to me. This is what I'm picking up as coffee. But now I try to leave it on my tongue for like, you know, two seconds, three seconds, and really just focus on the acidity, the sweetness, the texture. And I'll never be like him. But it does give me that moment of appreciation. And it's not just coffee, it's anything. It doesn't even have to be food. It could be just, you know, appreciating the view, appreciating the color of the light bulb in some store that you go to. But psychologists talk about how important noticing is, how important it is to, before you can appreciate, before you can be grateful, you have to notice and slow down time and just focus on that. And that's how you get some of your worries to melt away, even if it's just for a minute. Yeah, it is interesting, the little things to notice. I mean, even something like a bird chirping outside, the wind blowing, the leaves rustling, we often overlook them. And I find it fascinating too, because I think there's a lot of psychology and a lot of research that's gone into the art of savoring and making it feel like time stops in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I try to cultivate that. You know, sometimes I try to see my life as a curator of moments and experiences. And so when I have a nice moment, I try to sort of file it away and be like, all right, I'm going to hold on to that. So I have this library of nice moments. And I try to do it in more practical ways as well. I have this file on my computer that I look at every day. I love it. It's called One Thing. And every time I read a book or have a conversation like this one or listen to a podcast, I try to write one thing that I found interesting or moving or transformative. And I don't keep a gratitude journal, but every morning I send an email to my mom and she sends one to me of one thing that I'm grateful for that day. And it could be tiny. It could be, you know, that I found a new sound for my alarm, which is much more soothing than the like 
buzzing than I used to have. Or it could be something more profound, like I got in touch with a friend that I hadn't talked to and it really made my day. And, you know, the old cliche of, are you someone who sees the glass half full or half empty? You know, I think I was, as I mentioned, more of a half empty person. But I now tell my kids that I think that's the wrong way to frame it. I don't think you should be focusing on that at all. I think you should be focused on the fact that there is any water in the glass at all is miraculous because what it takes to get a glass to get running water, the fact that we can turn a little metal knob and have drinkable water is a miracle. And I went to the New York City Reservoir to see the thousands of people it took to make that true. You know, the engineers and the rangers, the testers, the chemists. And it wasn't true for 99% of human history that you could do this. It's still not true for a couple of billion people in the world who have to travel to get water hours. So, yeah, don't be thinking, oh, half full or half empty. Be thinking like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have water in here at all. Yeah. I think Seneca, Stoic philosopher, would look at a glass and say, isn't it amazing that this glass does not impart a taste? Isn't it amazing the look of the glass, the way that the glass is made, the way that light reflects off of the glass? And it's a version of gratitude, right? But it's all the elements that we would think are behind the scenes that then we take into perspective, take into our consciousness and say, look at this glass, how amazing that we even have water in the first place. You know, I think something you said in the book is that if something is done well for us, the process is largely invisible, which is why we take it for granted. Totally. And I live in New York, and I have a wife and kids, and I would say, let's be thankful for these tomatoes and for the farmers who grew them and for the cashier who sold me these tomatoes. And one night, my son, who was like 11 at the time, I think, said, that's okay, I guess, but it's also kind of lame because they're not here. They can't hear you, those people. If you cared, you would go and thank them in person. And I was like, well, that is a nice idea for a book (laughs) and a project. So he earned his dinner that night. And I set off on this project to thank every person I could who had anything to do. I decided to focus it on one thing, and that thing was my cup of coffee, just because I can't live without it. So I pledged to thank in person or by phone or email or however I could, as many people as possible who had anything to do with my cup of coffee. There are many revelations, but one was just how many people it takes. As I say in the book, you know, it doesn't take a village to make a cup of coffee. It takes the world because I took it wide. You know, I thanked the barista. I went to South America and thanked the farmer. But that's just the start. There's hundreds, thousands of people in between. The truck driver who drove the beans listens to music to stay awake. And I was like, who do you like? And he's like, well, Beyonce. So I called Beyonce's people to see if I could thank her in person. And that never happened. But there were quite a few that I was successful at, you know, meeting and he can't do his job without the road. So I thank the people who paved the road and the logo designer and the lumberjacks who cut down the wood for the cop. You know, it just goes on and on. It makes you realize just how many people we take for granted. And it really did have an effect on my mentality. I mean, it's still a struggle between those two sides. 
but this has really helped bulk up that Mr. Rogers side. And that was a wonderful experience because, you know, the gratitude journal is great. I have nothing but wonderful things to say about it, but that is a one-way experience. Like my son said, you're just thinking into, they don't know it. When you do two-way gratitude, when you're actually in front of that person or able to talk to them, it is not just good for them, it's good for you. It's like a, for me, it was like a huge mood booster. What I thought was striking when you were mentioning your gratitude journey is that some people you may not necessarily want to thank because they may not be good people. It's like a little existential crisis in a way. It was a little crisis. I, for instance, you know, I'm pretty into the environmental movement. I think it is a crisis, but my coffee wouldn't have gotten to me without Exxon oil and gas, you know, that that was used in the trucks and probably in the boat that brought the coffee beans to me. So as part of my project, I wrote a note to the CEO of ExxonMobil. I will say it was one of the more passive aggressive thank you notes in history. It was sort of, you know, thank you for providing the gas that helped get me my coffee. I love coffee. I hope to keep drinking coffee for another, you know, decade or as long as I live which will only be possible if we switch to more sustainable energy. So please look into that. So something along those lines, I never got a response. (laughs) I was going to ask you about that, actually. I was wondering, you know, it's been a while, still waiting from him. That makes sense. I think you're going to continue waiting. (laughs) One of the things you mentioned in your book, it's Barbara Aaron. She wrote a New York Times op-ed talking about the selfish side of gratitude. Yeah, this was interesting. And I'll present her point of view, and then I'll present my point of view, the correct point of view, of course. (laughs) No, she's very smart, much smarter than me. But she wrote an op-ed saying that the danger of gratitude is that she's very liberal. So she's thought that it was going to be used, or it is being used by corporations in a negative way, like Walmart or someone might say, to their workers, just be grateful you have a job. Don't complain. Don't ask for more wages or health care. Just be grateful. So that was an interesting point of view, and maybe there's some truth to it. But all of the research I read and the experts I talked to said that it was actually the opposite, that gratitude leads to a more pro-social outlook, that when you are feeling grateful, you want to pay it forward. You want to help other people. And I thought about that in my own life and when I battled depression. And when I am depressed, it is very hard for me to think of anyone else because I'm so focused on my own depression. And one of the best ways I found to help get me out of the depression is to go outward, is to force myself to try to help other people. So I think it's all related. But yeah, I actually think gratitude, it spurs us to want to make other people's lives better, not just our own. So I disagree with her, but I am, of course, grateful for her point of view. Very good. Very good. I like that. I like that. You know, I've posted a lot on LinkedIn and YouTube about this topic of gratitude and just being grateful for the fact that I even have a refrigerator or clean water. And, you know, you hear people complaining in large tech companies who make massive amounts of money that they just don't have enough or they're unhappy or what have you. And I 
tend to always say like, oh man, you got to reel it in. Like we have a faucet. I can go and I can turn a light switch on. And these are things that are really behind the scenes. I mean, we take the light switch for granted. But as I do that, you know, and I try to kind of inject perspective into people's lives through posts, I do get these visceral kind of hate comments like, well, I shouldn't be grateful for my abusive boss. And there is a line. I think there is some type of line because if you're being treated negatively or you have an abusive relationship or something like that, and I've been in an abusive corporate situation before, you know, there are terrible scenarios I think a lot of people have dealt with. So I had an abusive boss a few years back, won't name names or anything like that. It was more like a boss's boss but it was a culture of the entire ecosphere of our group. It was just a strange, strange culture. And I stuck around for two years and I could have left. I could have easily left and gone to another team or something within 30 days. We have a policy that allows for the movement. And I said, you know, I'm going to stick around because I'm grateful for some of the people that I work with. I'm grateful for some of the relationships that I've established here. I'm grateful for being pressure tested. So I almost like I turned it around to say like, as much as I am in hell right now, what is it teaching me? Mm, I love that. Yeah. It's hard to do, but I think it's an incredibly important skill. That is one of the things I struggle with the most is, you know, people who are in really horrible situations. Is it a privileged thing to tell them to be grateful? In a sense, yes. But it is also, I think, no matter what the situation is, there are still parts that are going to be good. Nothing is all black and white. There is always going to be something that Ed Kaufman would savor. And I also do try to have a big perspective, like a grand perspective. One of the sort of mantras I say to myself when I'm really down, it's a three-word mantra, which is surgery without anesthesia surgery with anesthesia, because one of my first books was I read the Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z when it still existed. So I tried to learn all of history. I forgot 99% of it. But one of the things that stuck with me was, yeah, just how horrible the past was. You know, the good old days were not good. They were disease ridden. They were violent. They were sexist, homophobic, you name it, smelly. Like, you know, you can't believe the smells they had to deal with. And surgery before they invented anesthesia, you know, if you got an operation, it was so bad that the doctors wouldn't tell you when your operation was. They would just show up at your house and surprise you because people committed suicide in anticipation of the pain. So, you know, we have a lot of problems. 2020 has been a horrible year, but I would still rather live in 2020 than like 1820. But it's a balance. It's hard. You know, pain is real. And, you know, you don't want to minimize that, but you want to make the best. We only have one go round, in my opinion. So make the best of what we have. Yeah, I agree. I think there was a game you mentioned in the book about it could be worse. It's kind of mental game. And that's what I did in my bad job situation, right? I just kept saying it could be worse. Like I could not have a job here. I could not have a job at all. Hell, I could be on the streets. I could be homeless. Oh, yeah. You can go farther than that. You could be like, you know, a cow in a factory farm. <laughs> I do play that game. I have mixed feelings about that game because I'm like, it is so sort of a dark way to think. But it's also, it can be very helpful. Like, it could be worse because 
it really drives home how much we do take for granted. So even in the hardest situations, there are things to latch on to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, AJ, where can people find you and what's next for you? What's next on the horizon? Is another book about gratitude or something else? You got a sneak peek? (laughs) Sure. I'm available in all the regular places. My website is ajjacobs.com and Twitter, AJ Jacobs. I am writing a book now that won't be out for another year, but I am excited about it. The title is called The Puzzler, A Quest to Solve All the Hardest Puzzles in the World from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. I'm working. I'm trying to crack those, but yeah, I'm having a great time. I've always loved crossword puzzles and words. And part of it is also similar to the gratitude book about a mindset. I find you can see the world using different metaphors. One metaphor is like the world is a battle. You know, you've got to fight. Everyone's out to get you. You got to fight, which has validity sometimes. But another metaphor is that the world is a puzzle and that you should be trying to find solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, AJ. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah. It was really great to have you. I'm really excited about the meaning of life portion of your next book. I think we would all like to know. Great. Thank you again, John. One of the key takeaways for me in this episode is that gratitude is a daily practice. There's so many things that are invisible to the eye that we take for granted. And it's so important for us to ground ourselves in realizing that we take them for granted and how people in the past, right, the good old days, didn't have access to clean water. Still today, people around the world lack clean water, lack electricity. It's hard for people in Western society to even believe that that's the case because we just take this stuff for granted. But I always like to think about those things in the morning and just being grateful, this kind of baseline gratitude for things we take for granted really helps me gain a sense of perspective and helps me with a sense of joy in what I have already. Lastly, remember surgery without anesthesia. If nothing else, take that away and think about that. If you liked the episode, be sure to subscribe and we'll catch you on the next one.